0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God.
1: Friendship with one another.
0: And open friendship for the sake of the world.
2: For more information about OKC First,
1: please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Job chapter 23, verse 1 through 6. Then Job answered, Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I know where I might find him, and that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him, and I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn that he would answer me, and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would give heed to me. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God, I think. Those are hard verses. Thank you, Emily. Emily is one of our interns this year. We're very grateful. Camden Goff is also one of our interns, and very grateful for them. And we made Emily read these very troubling verses. <laughs> I, I hope that you can sense that we have uh, made an all-out commitment to uh, the exploration of pain and sadness and hurt that we experience in life is just inevitable, right? I, I hope that you have you recognize that we've made this all-out commitment to explore what all of this means as we continue to be believing people. I I, I want you to recognize as as Tamara comes um, to the platform and whoever is going to help her, I want you to recognize that broken-heartedness anguish, anxiety. We as believers have to do something with these inevitabilities in life. And what I see, I'm in an interesting spot here as a pastor, a pastor at this church, by the way, gives me an interesting opportunity to be around people who have, who are great people of faith, but also around people who are in the process of leaving faith or people who have left faith. And by far, by far the biggest culprit, as it has to do with driving people out of the building, is this disconnect between what I experience in life and what I was told to be true about God. Inauthenticity is another way to talk about it. And so, the book of Job affords me the opportunity, better said like this, affords us the opportunity. The very presence of the book of Job in our Bibles, and by the way, it's there so we should probably deal with it, amen? Amen. The very presence of the book of Job in our Bibles gives us opportunity to ask these questions. Why, God? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? That bothers me just as much sometimes. And where are you in the process, God? Again, I want to say to us, the very asking of those questions is a testimony of faith. Far from outlawing those questions, far from making you feel like that you shouldn't ask those questions, I want to be the person in your life, I want to be the pastor in your ear who says, no, 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 God is plenty big enough to handle your hard questions. In fact, no relationship, including the one that you enjoy with God, is any better than that relationship's level of honesty. So be honest and ask hard questions of God and be willing to sit in the silence God doesn't answer right away. So we're in this sermon series entitled The Other Shoe. And we have a very talented, we have multiple very talented staff members. The one I want to talk about right now is Tamara Hughes, who actually wrote this song. And and in fact, I've asked her to write all of the rest of the songs too, like write so many more songs uh, to to support our sermon series, The Other Shoe. And so you saw it on the screens last week, but we're actually going to have, in one way or another, we're going to experience the song each of the four weeks, and so she's going to sing it for us today. stream dream. has kind of made the rounds, and Tamara's been asked to sing that song at a service designed specifically for people who have lost kids, either early in their childhood or in pregnancy. And so, man, what a gift. What a gift. Now, I recognize that that is a disorienting sort of song, because, because many, if not most of us, were, were raised with this belief that... When you do the right things, God does good things, and good things happen to good people. And at least to some extent, and by the way, I think there is, there is some truth to that. I, I think wisdom literature wants to say to us, if you will drive on the correct side of the road, if you will follow these particular rules, you are at least less likely to run into oncoming traffic. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody won't veer into your lane of traffic. Just because you do the right things, it does improve the percentage chance of health, vitality for you, but it doesn't mean that you won't have good, bad things that would happen to this good person. Liminal space, it is actually, it started as an architectural term, and it describes this space that's not here or there. It's sort of transitional space right? A hallway would be liminal space. It's not quite the room that you left, and it's not quite the room that you're headed to. It's the liminal space. It's the transitional space in between. And that's existed for a long time in the world of architecture. But now, more and more often, I'm seeing it pop up in other conversations as well. I have a very dear friend, a guy who spoke at camp a couple years ago, high school camp, named Stuart Williams, who himself lost his entire family because of a car accident. And after that, understood God's call into ministry. But man, he enters into ministry knowing that tragedy happens, that bad things happen to good people, and he has written pretty extensively on liminality. What happens? Where are we? Sometimes in life, you are kind of not here and not there. You are thrust, maybe by a bad thing, maybe even by a good thing, into this area of life that you find unfamiliar. It's a time of transition at best, a time of disorientation. And some of you, some of us, are currently in what I would call a liminal space. Maybe you have recently lost someone through death or divorce. Maybe you've recently lost the career that you've been planning for for so long. Maybe your living circumstances change such that you feel like you've lost something and you're not quite sure how to be. How how do I go about being alive now in the aftermath of this terrible thing that has happened? And is God still God? The book of Job is written to help those of us who have ever been in liminal spaces. It's written to help those of us who have ever asked the question, why, God, why? It's written for those of us who perhaps have even been frustrated when we didn't get the answer as soon as we put in our tokens worth of prayer. The book of Job explains to us, and, and the more I read it, the more grateful I am for it, explains to us that included in the expected experience of life and faith are these moments where we live in liminal spaces. Again, I think this is crucial Because there will be people in the room who will at some point determine whether or not this is all worth the effort. And if they are anchored in a place, anchored in a place where they understand and demand that the moral universe work just so, where only good things happen to good people and only bad things happen to my enemies who happen to be bad people. The moment that that does not proved to be true, and by the way, that moment's coming, if it hasn't already, it's coming. The moment when you or someone close to you suffers while being innocent, and that whole thing breaks down, and those are the people I watch wander away. I am happy to report that God is still God in liminal spaces. (laughs) And the book of Job is a great help to us there. Okay, to recap, the book of Job is a long piece of poetry sandwiched between two pieces of fable. And this old story was, was familiar to the people of this particular era. It existed outside of our universe of belief and faith. It existed in other faith traditions. So it's almost as if we are telling the story so as to tell it differently to shine a spotlight on how we would understand this story differently and how we understand our God to be different than your God's. Job the main character, is in fact upright and blameless. The narrator knows it, God says it, Job is upright and blameless. Guys, you can't really read the rest of the book of Job and miss this part. Job is innocent. Now, the accuser, which is going to be in your Bible, uh, is going to be listed perhaps as the Satan, but really it's not the the whatever it is with horns and the pitchfork, it's not that person. It actually seems to be somebody who works for God to root out bad faith. So according to the accuser, he goes, he wanders around all of creation looking for bad faith so he could report it back to God and fix that person or fix that situation one way or another. The accuser wonders out loud whether or not anybody actually loves God. Like, do you actually love God? And, and God says, hey, my man Job loves me. And the accuser says, but, but does he really? Because it seems like Job loves you because he's gotten some really good stuff, cool stuff. Take that stuff away and let's see what happens to his love for you. Job then is devastated by loss. God gets out of the way, lets it happen. But Job does not turn on God. And so again, God brags on Job, only to have this same accuser come back with another test. Well, let's take away, having taken away all of his wealth, having taken away all of his livestock, having taken away all of his children. Let's now take away his health and see if that causes him to turn on you. And God agrees to the test. Job is devastated, according to the book, by disease and pain, so much so that he is unrecognizable to his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who come to comfort him. After several days of silence, where they would just sit and ache with him, because that's what good friends do, they change, and they turn on Job. Instead of comforting him, they offered Jabe the age-old platitudes, and see if you've heard this before, well, God must have had a reason. Dear friends, I will never forget, in 1992, we lost one of our centerpieces of our youth group, the daughter of one of our staff members. We lost her and it was a freakish sort of disease like who dies of strep throat and her younger sister also in their group i will never forget walking up on a congregation that happened on a conversation that happened right there when someone said god must have had a reason do you know what the single worst thing that could have been said to a younger sister in that moment Here is the worst possible thing that could have been said to a younger sister in that moment of loss and pain. When everything was shattered, this was the ultimate liminal space. The absolute worst thing anyone could say to that child is, God must have had a reason. What did you do, Job, to deserve this? Because this is what God does, right? God punishes the bad people. At least this was, the, or this was the universe in which these folks have been raised. But throughout these first several chapters, Job fires back, insisting he is innocent. And by the way, we know it's true. And so as they push, Job continues to protest, and finally he erupts. He says there in chapter 6, no, no, no. God prefers my honest anger over your hypocritical flattery. In fact, Job goes as far. We're going to hear this a lot today. Job goes goes as far as to beg to be put on trial himself. He said, "Then God will show up, and even if somehow I'm found to be guilty, at least I'll know then what I've done to deserve all of this. But between now and then, I challenge God to show up in a courtroom. Let's have this out." The book of Job contains three rounds of speeches/slash arguments between Job's friends/slash comforters/slash critics. The arguments also happen between Job and God, and each round seems to get angrier, nastier, more personal. The friends grow increasingly frustrated with Job because he won't admit his guilt, his part, in bringing all of this suffering about. And worse than that, in Job, proclaiming his innocence, Job is putting their neat and tidy universes of belief and meaning at great risk. This book is written for people who have neat and tidy universals, universes in which God only does bad things to bad people, in which God is ultimately in control. This book is written for you, and it may not feel like it at first, but I promise you, it is a gift to you. And if it feels like I'm reading a lot today, it's because, again, I'm petrified by this sermon and by this book, and so I'm making sure that I don't say dumb things by reading a lot of things that I have written As we begin, I should tell you how grateful I am to have found Harold Kushner's commentary on the book of Job. He's a rabbi, a Jewish biblical scholar and theologian of the highest order, and his commentary on Job reflects some of the best work being done on Job today. And if that name, Harold Kushner, sounds familiar to you, perhaps it's because he's the author of the best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People written after the death of his son who died at the age of 14 after an 11-year battle with a terrible and terrifying disease. It's as if his work on Job is a continuation of that bestseller, like he, Kushner, continues to do his own therapy as he studies and as he writes. And so here we are, chapter 15. And we're going to work all the way up to those difficult verses in 23. Friend number one. Eliphaz begins his second attack on his suffering friend, Job. Verse 6 in chapter 15. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the firstborn of the human race? There's sarcasm all in this. Were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know, Job, that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side, those older than your father. Come on, Job. You're going to try to teach us something about the way God is and God works? We're older than you, and because we're older than you, we know better than you. I got to tell you, Eliphaz is actually just testifying here, right? This is how God must work. This is not limited to the Old Testament, though. John chapter 9, the disciples and Jesus are walking past someone, a man, a blind man, a man born blind, and here's the question that they ask. Hey, Jesus, who, by the way, is God. Everybody remember that? Hey, Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that this man was born blind? And we could talk for 30 minutes, and I won't, about all that happens there. But essentially, let me boil it down to this. Jesus says, you guys, come on. It's not the way this works. Now, that is an affront to some of you in the room. In fact, some of you might say, no, I need need this to work like this. But Jesus, in response to the disciples, he kind of says, you all are ridiculous. That's not the way this works. Job answers, <laughs> I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> have windy words no limit or what provokes you that you keep on talking? <laughs> Love this. I also could talk as you do if, I were, if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Job doesn't directly address Eliphaz or the argument. Instead, Job stubbornly insists that his quarrel isn't with his friends, it's with God. He continues to beg God to meet him in a heavenly courtroom so that this matter can finally be settled. Verse 16, my face is red with weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids, though there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood. My blood is innocent. Let my outcry find no resting place. Even now, in fact, my witness is in heaven. God, you're there. And he that vouches for me is on high. When will this God show up? So Job knows that God knows that Job is innocent, that he has done nothing to deserve all of this anguish, and he's pleading for God to come to the trial and perhaps even to take the stand in Job's defense. Friend number two. This perhaps is even more troubling. Then Bildad said, How long, Job, will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we shall speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight, Job? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken because of you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Here's essentially what this guy is saying. Why is your experience of life so important that it should upset our experience of the universal belief? How dare you, Job, somehow prefer your experience of life and your pain to everything that we are going through? This is from Harold Kushner. Is he, uh, Bildad is saying, in, in effect, how dare you disturb us with your reality, Job? Don't you understand that relying on God to protect the innocent and punish the wicked is what helps us to go on with our lives? That is what lets us close our eyes at night and go to sleep. That's what gives us the courage to wake up in the morning and face the world. That's why we feel safe Bringing children into this world and letting ourselves love them. We do it because we trust God to keep them and us safe. And you, Job, have the nerve to say to us that maybe God isn't like that? Bildad is saying to Job, We and everyone like us are not interested in this truth when it comes to God. We don't go to church or to the synagogue for a theology seminar. <laughs> We go to be reassured that God is a loving Father who will protect us, and when he chastises us, it's for our own good and because we deserve it. And if you, Job, try to tell us based on your own atypical experience that such a God does not exist, we do not want to listen. C.S. Lewis, famous, 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 famous guy, who in Great Britain wrote some incredible things, Chronicles of Narnia, right? Several other books and at one time was probably understood to be the most articulate mouthpiece for faith in Great Britain. And he said this at one point. He said, pain is the chisel the Divine Sculptor uses to shape us into the people he envisions us as capable of being. I smart, now who's gonna argue with C.S. Lewis? Right? Well, I I will tell you who will argue with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Now, that first statement was made while he was still a bachelor. And then he fell in love with Joy Davidman. And something about experiencing life with Joy Davidman, by the way, this is, she was the inspiration uh, behind the book, Surprised by Joy. Something about his life with Joy Davidman changed his theology <laughs> It, but isn't that how we work, right? You, you name for me the social slash theological conversation that we need to have. If you don't have any experience with these kinds of people, then you're going to have a particular vision, a particular understanding, a particular opinion. But the moment this issue comes to your home, strangely enough, your theology changes. That's okay, it happened to people as great as C.S. Lewis. Joy died a slow and painful death of bone cancer. There were people who would remind him of his words spoken earlier before he loved Joy about pain, being a tool in God's hand to sculpt a person. Watching her die He says this, nope, this cannot be God's will. This is outside of God's will for me, for life. No, this isn't God teaching me a lesson somehow and sacrificing her in the process. This is life, this happens. It gives me more respect for C.S. Lewis, the reality of his life overpowered his theology, and to his credit, he has the integrity to give up what he believed and taught for years. In choosing the truth of real life over the comfortable illusion of traditional belief, he does something Job's friends are incapable of doing, or as modern day theologian Mike Tyson might say, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and and, and let's, let's make it work here in this conversation we're having. Everybody has a robust theology that they will cling to with both hands and roll it up and use it like a weapon until tragedy speaks name, and you find yourself in a liminal space. Verse 17 of chapter 19, Job loses it. He's been abandoned by everyone. Verse 17, it's right there in Scripture. My breath is repulsive even to my wife. <laughs> I am loathsome to my own family. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My, blown, my bones cling to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you like God, friends? Pursue me, never never satisfied with my flesh. Oh, that my words were written down, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. He wants his testimony to be here and established forever. And then there are these familiar verses. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he, but it could have been translated, I will stand upon the earth. These are beautiful verses, and they belong, you know, uh, in needlepoint pillows. They belong in frames. However, I'm not sure they're saying what we make them say. I think what this is is a continuation of Job's desire to have a face-to-face with God, to have it out with God, to have God show up and explain to him what's going on. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he Or I will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, and then in my flesh I shall see God, I shall see God whom I shall see on my side, and my eye shall behold, and not another. That word Redeemer. Goel, the Hebrew word is goel. It really doesn't have to do with a heaven after you die sort of situation. A goel. In Job's day, would have been somebody who comes in and rescues, takes your side and advocates. Here, a Goel then is someone who intervenes when an unjust or intolerable situation has come about and takes on himself or herself then the responsibility for setting things right. She is obliged to do so. For a kinsman, even if the kinsman's situation is a result of his own action, it is, this, it is to this dimension of God a God who cannot tolerate the reduction of a human being fashioned in his own image, to be left. Job says, I am without family. My friends have deserted me. You, God, are the father of all humanity. I'm calling on you to be my Goel who comes to my rescue, who comes to advocate for me. I'm calling on you to come and make things right. Here's something we can say about Job. Man, the guy has such faith believes in the nature and character of God. Chapter 22 begins the third round of speeches and accusations aimed at Job by his three critics. This part of the book regularly descends into chaos. After chapters 23 and 24, it's almost as if they've surrounded Job, shouting at him while shouting over one another. And some of your Bibles, including mine, will mention that these verses have been, shall we say, difficult to translate and interpret. But we do have some things that are Clear enough, in chapter 22, again, Eliphaz. Is not your wickedness great? Again, he's insisting that Job has done something terrible. There is no end to your iniquities. You have ex- exacted pledges from your family for no reason. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The powerful possess the land, and the favored live in it. You have sent widows away empty-handed, and the arms of the orphans you have crushed. It's nonsense. Chapter 22 is clear enough, sadly. It's Eliphaz's most brutal and specific accusation yet. He lists several baseless charging, accusing Job of everything from abusing family to mistreating the poor, the widow. But we know it's not true because Scripture tells us it's not true. We know it. Job knows it. But he in the faz insists on it. He kind of needs this to be true of Job. But remember, he's trying to keep his own moral universe in check, in order. He needs this to be true of Job, or else his understanding of God and God's moral universe falls apart. And as you would expect now, after all of this, it's withering. Job is broken, he's tired and in despair. And finally, we arrive at Job 23. In response, Job says, This is in the Bible, y'all. Today my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. Are you as suspicious as I am of every 30-minute show that ends on a happy note? Every hour-long show that ends on a happy note? Every 30-minute sermon, that ends with God working everything out for you just like you wanted it. Verse 4, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, but he would give heed to me there an upright person could reason with God and I should be acquitted forever by my judge even now, even now Job aches to be in the presence of God still believing that God is good and powerful enough to come to his side, to his defense but, and here are the other verses that weren't read today that are part of the preaching text how many of us can identify with this Job can't seem to find God if I go forward, he's not there backward, I can't perceive him On the left, he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. Verse 16, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. Did you all know this was in the Bible? Are we ready to take another vote and maybe vote Job out of the Bible? And if so, it's a joke. But if so, why? Imagine what we would lose if we lost these kinds of words. And by the way, these aren't the, this isn't the only place where you will have moments of lament. And even anger, out and out anger, where a believer's posture toward God is, is probably best represented by clenched fists, gritted teeth. There is a lot of this in Scripture, but you wouldn't necessarily know it based on all of our praise and worship songs, Amen. Really, no? But here's the danger. If we reduce God to the happy endings of all of our hard stories, then where will God be when the story doesn't end well? Moving all the way ahead. Pass the chaos to chapter 31. Chapter 31 reads like a point-by-point refutation of the accusations made by Eliphaz in chapter 22. In fact, this entire chapter, chapter 31, reads like an oath statement. We're going back to the courtroom now. A final testimony of Job's innocence and a final pleading request that God would just show up and answer for God's actions or perhaps take the stand in God's defense. Either way, in chapter 31, Job swears an oath oath declaring his innocence, and he waits for God. And at the end of chapter 31, we have this huge liminal space and this short verse. The words of Job are ended. Now, there are a few chapters that I'm not going to cover. Chapters 32 through 37 are largely considered to be an intrusion. It's a young-ish kind of person who comes and says, well, how dare these older people uh, give up this ground to Job? And so they just have a sharper attack now in this mouth of this person called Elihu. But most people say, yeah, that's just a kind of a recasting of all the older arguments. So go ahead and read them. They're worth reading. They're they're kind of terrifying and frustrating, but they're worth reading. But we're going to go to chapter 38, where God shows up. And over the next couple of weeks, while Job's words will will have been at an end, God just begins to speak, and I promise you, there's something there for you. Okay, to sum up, (laughs) The biblical witness is that the universe is not neatly organized according to reward and punishment. Creation just isn't that way. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. It's complicated, and I'm sorry, but it's complicated. And yet, I'm not sorry. (laughs) In fact, as I have read and studied these past weeks, I'm relieved. I'm more and more relieved Each time I return to these verses, nope, God hasn't constructed a rigid universe in which our human frailty is always punished. God is not a mathematical tyrant, blessing only when we score well on each of life's tests. I have no doubt that God honors the diligent, but loves the broken just as much And all God's people said. We don't purchase God with our goodness, and we don't repulse God with our badness. God is Grace. God loves. Yes, it matters what we do. It matters who we are. But who God is will always matter more than all God's people said. So no. That's not how things are organized, apparently. Just read Scripture. Just read Scripture, people. Just look around. Okay, John, then how are things organized? What are we to think now and believe now, who is this God and what do we make of this world and our lives now? I am happy to report that there are answers to those questions. And I hope to see you next week (laughs) when God takes center stage and answers Job's questions, our questions and accusations. That will take us two weeks to unpack. I'm asking you, perhaps like I've never asked you before, protect these times and show up, and if not here, on the live stream. But for now, we are here in a liminal space. Neither here nor there, perhaps unsettled, perhaps uncomfortable, probably unsatisfied. But here's the thing. Even as it has to do with liminal spaces and moments of transition, we are not alone. You may be right now thinking, I I don't I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to think. Friends, that could be for you a step in the right direction. But even as you wander into what would be for you uncharted territory, again, happy to report that you aren't charting that territory alone. God is here. If you're helping us, would you please make sure that everyone has the elements that we need to work through this ritual, which I think is perfectly suited for liminal spaces? <laughs> I mean, again, I want to draw your attention to the fact that when we eat and we drink together, we are careful to say that this isn't just bread, this is bread born of pain, broken body. And shed blood. In other words, this is God showing up. Wherever you are, if you are in a liminal space right now because of death, because of divorce, because of loss, because of something that has disoriented your life, maybe you have a loved one that is slowly dying before your eyes. If you are in that liminal space, the best news I have to offer you right now is not a simple answer to those complex problems. The best news I have to give you today is this. God is not absent. God is not absent. And not only does God arrive in these liminal spaces, but God arrives knowing what pain and disorientation and heartache are like. So, Heavenly Father, bless these elements and with them remind us, God, that in fact, you do know what it's like to be in a liminal space, to be in a painful space, a place of transition. You know what it's like to live in the aftermath of abject pain and suffering that so disorients and changes everything, even our view of you. Remind us, God, that you are a God who understands that. Remind us, God, that you are a God who expects that our lives will experience that. And draw us back to these passages of scripture, Job and others, that are there to remind us that liminal spaces are still within your view and vision. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it, remember me. And so now church, if you would take and break and eat. In the same way, he would later take the cup And hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. It is shed blood. (laughs) And every time you drink it, even on those days where you are completely disoriented, when you are living, you feel like you now are a citizen of liminal space. (laughs) Every time, remember that I'm there and that I know. And now take and drink. Father, unsettled, uncomfortable, unsatisfied, questions unanswered, and yet not alone. And yet not alone. God, would you give us a few moments now to gather and collect ourselves and to give voice, to confess that we are perhaps in a painful place wondering where we are because we are wondering where you are. And I would encourage that prayer for you now. Whatever situation it is that brings you to this liminal space, I would encourage you now to pray as authentically and as honestly as you know how your pain, your anguish, your disorientation is welcome in the sanctuary of the Lord. for what we will hear in weeks to come. And in great confidence in the character of God, I lead us now in this prayer. May the almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Jason.
1: Continuing in these same spirit and moments of prayer, as you've prayed for yourself in these moments of disorientation. In these moments now, would we offer words of intercession for those who we know need the presence and the healing of God in the midst of their situations. And whatever comes to your mind for a person that you love or a situation around the world, you can pray for those in these moments as I pray for a few in the life of our church. And so God, we ask that you would come alongside of Adeline Guffin, this little four month old baby Haley and Zach. Most of you would know Haley from our nursery and preschool as one of our most faithful teachers. The little one is um, in the hospital with COVID and a variety of different complications. And so God, we ask that in this space for the Guffin family, that your hand of healing and wholeness and strength would come to this mom and dad, but especially to this little baby Adeline. God, we ask that you would surround folks who need a special healing touch from you. God, we think of our friend Jack Johnson, who's down the street at Belleville, helping to get better through this rehab opportunity for him. God, would your presence be close to him and to Clara and their family? God, we ask that you would be with some friends in Glenn and Betty Fain, and our friends Gerald and Frida Human. and I can't speak their names without smiling. God, would you be with them and may your loving presence rest with them? God, we ask that you would be with a few, God, who need your healing touch. I think of Bonnie Goodwin and ask that you, God, would come alongside of her and give her strength, healing, hope, Lord, and come alongside of her family. God, we also ask for your healing in the life of Carolyn Fielding, the daughter of the Winslows, Dennis Bratcher, who's had a good week, Angela Adam, who's also doing better, and we pray for healing in the life of my wife, Katie, her mom, Margaret Farmer. And as we move towards these moments of prayer, I want to just invite you to just a little bit different in this month of October to pray with me a prayer that's not the Lord's Prayer. And if you weren't with us this week, that might be news to you that we're not going to be concluding this time of prayer through this sermon series in the month of October, looking through Job with the Lord's Prayer, but instead with this prayer from Psalm 22. And I think it's going to be on the screens in front of us. This is a prayer that Jesus himself prayed in when times did not go that he thought perhaps they might go. And so you can listen to me pray this prayer, or you can join me as we pray together, as we conclude our time of intercessory prayer with this prayer from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Lord, hear our prayer.